Amen. West Point, take your Bible, turn to the second book in God's revealed word, and that would be Exodus. Exodus, second book, not only of the Old Testament, but of the Pentateuch, of course, really that, uh, the assembly of five, you can look at as one, which we'll touch on more later, Genesis, then Exodus. That is, of course, our new study that we begin today. And as we begin, as you turn there to Exodus 1, a few things about this book. Exodus is a book about a man, Moses. Not only is Moses the author of the book, but his presence is all over it. That said, Moses is not the hero of the book, nor is he in any sense heroic at all. Moses is impulsive, hesitant, and negligent. He is a mixed man, so often, who fails to recognize his God-given potential or his own human limitations. It's the mixed bag you get with Moses. In this study, we will learn much from the life of this servant of God, Moses. But let's be clear, Westman, as we begin, this is not Moses' book. This is not his book. Exodus is also a book about a nation, Israel. This movement of Israel from descendants of Abraham to the people of God. That is the spine of this book in which the narrative moves following their trail. However, as much as Israel's movements move this book, Israel is not the predominant mover in Exodus. Israel is only following. In this study, we will learn much from the nation of Israel. Many examples we will glean. But Westmount, to be clear as we begin, this is not Israel's book. This is not Israel's book. No, Westmount, this book is not about mankind or nations at all in an ultimate sense. Certainly those are the more famous and well-known depictions and Maybe you're thinking of the Hollywood depictions, maybe you're thinking of the dramatic presentations, maybe you're thinking of what goes in your mind as you read about Egyptian courts and wilderness. But to keep it at that low level is in every way to miss the point of this book. No, church, this book is ultimately about God, the sovereign God of heaven and earth. Exodus is about God alone. How God alone presides high and vaulted above all his creation. How God alone defines the terms for man's relationship with him. Exodus is about how God alone works through all things and all people for his great purpose and great glory. And here it is, Exodus is about how God alone holds sovereign power and authority from the highest mountain peak to the most inner recess of the human soul. God is sovereign over all of it. That is Exodus. Exodus is a book where the greatest of earthly empires, let's be clear about that as we get into the context, Egypt, ancient Egypt, the greatest power, world power of the time, the greatest earthly empire, and the greatest leader of the time, Pharaoh. Exodus is a book where that empire, that leader, are greatly humbled. They are brought to their knees under the eternal power and might of God and God alone. Like a speck of dust against the solar system and more. 
is man laid bare for what he truly is under a holy, mighty, and sovereign God of the Exodus. And that brings us to the question that we normally ask to begin each new study, and it is this, why Exodus? Why Exodus? Why this book and not others? Why now? Many of you, and I always enjoy this, when you ask me, why are we going to Exodus? And why now? I really appreciate that question. And we always ask it when we start a study. Well, let's answer that question. And as we do so, we're going to introduce some of the themes of this book. We're just going to do this together that we're going to encounter along the way. Why Exodus? Why Exodus? First, Exodus is a book about transition. Exodus is a book about transition. Exodus marks the transition of God's people from bondage to redemption. Exodus presents the transition for God's people from position to relationship. No longer just descendants, a ragtag group of descendants, but they are now unified as a nation. Like the movement from conception to birth and infancy is what we track of the nation of Israel in this book. Exodus describes the journey, but here it is, not all of it. In Exodus, there is promise fulfilled, we would say redemption, but by chapter 40, you're left with expectation. You realize there's much more to be said. And Christian, in many ways, you are there too this morning. You are in transition. You have been saved, Christian. You have been bought, washed by the blood of the Lamb. You have been redeemed, but now you are in transition. You're not in glory yet. You're headed there, praise God. But you are being set apart, daily being conformed, sanctified. You're in transition. Westmount, there are principles here for us too when we look at the corporate body. We too, Westmount Bible Chapel, are in transition, are we not? It's five years, I can't believe that now or so, of this new season of Westmount. Much foundation's been laid over the past half decade. But now it's time for Westmount Bible Chapel to take the next step. For you, Christian, for us, church, the book of Exodus is timely for us in transition. And that is one reason why we're studying Exodus here and now. But there's another. Two, Exodus is a book about revelation. Exodus is a book about revelation. Exodus is the book where God makes himself known. This might be the aspect of Exodus that's most famously known. God makes himself known. Indeed, God was known to Noah, to Abraham, and to Joseph in Genesis. It's true. However, Exodus is where the presence of God came down in a bush on a mountain in the tabernacle. In Exodus, we have God Almighty revealing himself in a very intimate way. Hold on to that in this study. God revealing himself in a very intimate way. Exodus lays a foundational revelation where God reveals his name, his attributes, his law, and his worship. That's all in Exodus. And church, mark this. This is God revealing himself to his people. You see that? He's revealing himself to his people. Yes, in Exodus, we will see God reveal himself to Egypt. And mark it, that's important. And we're going to get there. We're going to get there. 
And that's an important piece, that the nations would know that there is a God. But that foreign revelation is not of the most important, as important as it is. From beginning to end, Exodus is about God revealing himself to his own chosen people. And I want to suggest to you this morning that God's people, we, today, a different set of God's people, need this anew. Yes, church, us, thousands of years later, you and I are somewhere between our salvation and our glorification, as we said in transition, but along the way, we've lost the revelation of God. Somewhere between that first Christian disappointment or that last church split, somewhere amid those past years or decades or seasons in your walk with Christ, somewhere today in this pandemic, in the riots, in the world upheaval, somewhere you, me, we have lost our view and revelation of a holy God. Somewhere, somehow, Christian, we have forgotten who God is. However, the masses, for the masses, this absence is not a case of gradual memory loss. Now we broaden the problem. For the masses, this is not just gradually forgetting. This is, in fact, neglect. It's neglect. Years of neglect in the church proper, growing unbelief, so many getting bored and restless with the book that's in your hand, the revealed word, and they look at it and say, this is not enough. It's not enough, and my ears are quite itchy. Hence, low views of God grow rampant, and they infiltrate fidgety churches. And now, watered down, weak views of an almighty God are devastatingly everywhere. Where is the high view of God? In these challenging times, we're now reaping the harvest of years of a low view of God. Do you see it? Do you see it? We're reaping the harvest of years of a God that supposedly understands your pet sins. We're reaping the harvest of a low buddy God that throws his arm around your shoulder and says, it's okay, it's just okay. Years where we've tolerated disobedience. And is it any wonder, Westmount, that we cannot trust such a God? When we need a God to deal with the evil of the world, we turn to that God who's been okay with our pet sin and say, can I trust you? God is not okay with that. Westmount, God is not an option. Beloved brothers and sisters, God is only. God is only. In these times, like all times, God is God alone. That's the second reason. Let me give you a third why Exodus is so important for us today. Exodus is a book about deliverance. Deliverance. At the heart of this book is the God who delivers his people. He delivers his promised and he delivers powerfully. Israel's deliverance is remarkable. At a glance, it's a sweeping epic. An oppressed people in bondage as slaves, liberated miraculously by sea. It doesn't get any better than that, right? 
certainly for Hollywood and others that want to run wild with it. That physical deliverance, of course, is the narrative at the heart of Exodus. However, upon careful reading of this book, we see that may be a deliverance, but it is not the deliverance in view. It's not. Because if it was, this book would end after chapter 15 at the Song of Moses and the triumphant song. But the book doesn't end there, does it? The singing, as we'll see, is short-lived. In fact, it quickly, within six, seven verses, becomes a distant memory. This delivered people, now imagine it, you have been delivered, you are free. You are free. And they spend their freedom doing what? They're free. Grumbling, complaining, erecting statues to dance around it. That's how they spend their deliverance. It appears, as we'll see in this book, that these delivered people need deliverance. Yes, Exodus demonstrates for us that the deliverance we need, here it is, Westmount, is not from circumstance. Can I say that again? The deliverance you and I need is not from circumstance and how easily we are fooled by this. This is the deliverance that fools us so quickly in a tangible world. The deliverance that says things like, if I was only delivered from this family, if I was only delivered from this marriage, if I was only delivered from this trial, if only I could be delivered from this pandemic, once this is over, if I could get that deliverance, things will get better. If I could only be delivered from this government, from this debt, from this illness, and on and on it goes, we seek deliverance every day. Yes, like the Israelites, we seek those deliverances over and over again. Yet, like an oasis in the desert, it is just a mirage. What mankind needs, mark this, and what we all need, is not deliverance from everything around us, is not deliverance from every circumstance that presses in on us. No, what we need deliverance for is what is inside us and what is killing us. Friends, what we need deliverance from is sin. I marvel. I marvel at the fret over a death rate less than 1%. Yet sin's death rate is 100%. Who wants deliverance from that? We need deliverance from the one thing, the only thing, ultimately, that will kill us all. Sin. Exodus thus points to deliverance. It points us there. And that is why we need this message again today. Fourthly, Exodus is a book about communion. Communion. Now by communion, some of you might be saying, wait a minute, I've heard that word before. If you're like me in the Roman Catholic Church, you start to get a little antsy when you hear the word communion. We're not talking about the Roman Catholic sacrament like we do always at Westmount. What do we want to do? We want to redeem these good biblical words. Exodus is about communion. Communion. Communion is that rich biblical word that simply means relationship, an intimate relationship. Intimate relationship. Exodus is a book that details that intimacy, not Israelite with Israelite, Although the law, as we'll see in this book, has something to say about how God's people are to commune with each other. But more than that, and what horizontal relationship always flows out of, is vertical relationship. 
That is the relationship God's people have with their God. That's what we're talking about here. And more specifically, Exodus looks at this. What does it mean to have a relationship with a holy God? What does it mean to have a relationship with a holy God? Who defines the terms of your relationship with God? Have you thought about that? Who's defining the terms of your relationship with God? I mean, is it, as popularly thought of, is it to each his own? Kind of leave each other alone and we can all have our own definitions? I mean, that sounds great, doesn't it? And when the world's on fire, maybe that's really what we want to hear, right? That everyone can have their own definitions and... That's a really good tolerance. Yet, if that was the case, we would have what? Many different books of Exodus, wouldn't we? We'd have Elisa's book and Jerry's book and Atticus's book. We'd have all kinds of books. Their own personal little copy of Exodus, and that's how we function. We've got our own little private copy, not just of books of Exodus, of God's Word. Of God's Word. We're all like Thomas Jefferson that took out his scissors, right, to the Bible and said, I don't like this, I like this, and I'm going to put this together and pad that in. Well, here you go. Here's a Thomas Jefferson Bible. That's what we do. And that's because, Westmount, making a profession for Christ, just simply saying the words with your lips, claiming that you're a Christian is cheap. It's cheap. Believing in him Living in a genuine relationship with him. Now, listen to me. That's costly. That's costly. It means your life will change, and not just tweaks. Your life will be turned upside down, but upside down under a holy, sovereign God. There's no better way. It might give you the hives to hear that God has defined terms and boundaries and standards Maybe you don't like those words, but that is, beloved, precisely what this book is going to show us. God has defined the terms. He has. Communion, thus, with God means you live in a relationship with God, here it is, as he has defined the terms, not you. In Exodus, we will see exactly what that looks like, and conversely, you will see what it looks like to live life on your own terms, on your own whims, on your own feelings, by your own little personal copy of a scripture. In Exodus, we will see this and mark it. We will see humanity's great problem on display. This is like placed on a pedestal in Exodus. Humanity's great problem is this. Sinners want a savior, but they do not want a Lord. Sinners want a savior, but they don't want a Lord. People in trouble have no problem crying out until they're okay. And we're going to see this, believe you me, in this book. But once they're saved and placed on solid ground and told where to walk so that they don't go down again, right? Told to avoid the quicksand, the landmines, the pitfalls, right? When they're given law, perish the thought. Well, that arouses protest. I didn't ask for that. I just wanted you to save me. Church, if we're not careful, we join those protests too. It's quiet at first. But soon left unchecked, we can pull the curtain back and find a whole host of areas in our life that refuse to submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ. If we're not careful. And why? Because at heart, we are rebels. Just like the Israelites 
And if we are, then our remedy is exactly the same. Westmount, that's why, Exodus. That's why. And I trust you see why this book is so important for us today. With that, let's now turn our attention to the text, to the words of Exodus itself. Let's consider the opening verses. Look with me. Chapter 1, verse 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his own household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation, but the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. By way of opening this morning, our first point, we're going to frame these opening verses on two things. Our first point is this, the preservation of God. The preservation of God. Look at verse 1 again. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his own household. Now, you look at a verse like that, and at face value, you read that, and you realize that some story has already been told. This first verse just assumes, reader, that you're aware of the details. You know of an Israel, you know of an Egypt, and you know of a Jacob. Do you see that? It just assumes that you're aware of that as you open the book. Well, not just on the surface, but behind the English, if we were to get into the original language in the Hebrew, it does even more than that. We could actually translate the opening phrase this way, and then these are the names. That's actually one letter in the Hebrew, the, the Vav consecutive. It's a conjunction. It's like an and. And it tells us this is a continuation of what's gone on before. In fact, if you were to go to the opening of Leviticus, the opening of Numbers, they open exactly the same way, each connecting each book to one another. The Bible's opening books, each grammatically linked, and that tells us they're to be read as one book. It's one overarching story. Because Exodus is part of a bigger story, and we're going to see toward the end, it's part of an even bigger story in God's Word. All connected. So what is the story that we're entering into here? What's the story from the beginning? Genesis, the story of beginnings, the beginning of place and people. Remember the opening of creation. God calling out then, not only his own, but specifically, Genesis 12, Abraham. And he makes a covenant with him. You know this passage, Genesis 12, First few verses. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, this is to Abraham, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. We know those beginning passages. What about in the very next chapter, chapter 13, even more specific? Listen to this. For all the land that you see, this is to Abram again, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. There's a promise. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. That's amazing. Those are the opening, beginning. Those are the covenant promises through Abraham. 
Now, that's one thing, but God gets even more specific. Listen to this, the sovereign God in the details. Genesis 15, 13. Again, the Lord speaks to Abram and he says this. Listen carefully. Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. Hmm. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they will come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. I mean, in one sense, that's your scaffolding for the book of Exodus, is it not? Look at it. In the book before, prophesied, promised, detailed by a sovereign God. That expectation then continues through the patriarchs, through Abraham. Those are given to Abraham. They continue through his descendants. Isaac has two sons, hardly a multitude, but then one of those, Jacob, has 12 Twelve, twelve brothers, one of which is Joseph, who the other brothers are famously jealous of. His story is told at the end of Genesis. How much those brothers despise Joseph is illustrated in the fact that they dump him in a well and leave him for dead, dump him in a pit. In fact, they had every intention of killing him. If it wasn't but the mercy of one brother. Soon he is sold into traitors, passing traitors, left for dead. Reported back to Jacob that he's as good as dead. Well, as the story goes on, Joseph makes his way, lo and behold, to the highest court of the land. The military officer of Egypt, Potiphar, he ends up in his care. And providentially, wouldn't you know, through a series of dreams, a series of affirmations of the hand of God on this man, Joseph rises to the second seat, really, as it would become clear in the whole world, under Pharaoh. Lo and behold. And as he sits there, one of his duties is to superintend the storehouses. And lo and behold, there's a famine in the land. And what do you think is happening back in Canaan? The people are dying. They're dying of starvation. And as Jacob looks at his 11 sons, realizes, I need to send you on a life-saving mission to Egypt because I hear that's where all the grain is. Whoever it is that's doing that, you need to go there and get that grain. Isn't that amazing? And the brothers miraculously end up back in Egypt and they're face-to-face with Joseph. They don't recognize him. But soon, through a series of circumstances, as Joseph weeps, as Joseph affirms, Finally, Joseph reveals himself, giving them, by the way, possessions along the way, just as we read, as a precursor to what was to come. And famously, most famously, when he has revealed himself and his brothers are trembling, thinking, Joseph's going to strike us down, when you think, here it is, Joseph, vengeance is yours, Joseph, let them have it, we recognize that for the low view that it is of the grand story of God. Pick it up in Genesis 50, 20. Joseph says, do not fear for I am in the place of God. He's in Egypt. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. That's a high view of God. That's Joseph looking above his circumstances, recognizing what God is doing what God is doing. 
In other words, Joseph and his brothers ending up in Egypt, Joseph sees, is all part of the plan. It's all part of the plan. In Canaan, note this, in Canaan, they would have died of starvation and died out. But now they're in Egypt. And as the opening verses of Exodus encounter us, there they are. They're not dead in Canaan. They're alive in Egypt, preserved. As Genesis ends, we marvel at the work of a sovereign God to work through the evil choices of men. What kind of God is this? To work through the evil choices of men to further his decrees and purposes. Only God alone. Let's continue reading. You can turn a page back in Genesis 50. Let's just continue on verse 21. So do not fear. I will provide for you. This is Joseph continuing. And your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So Joseph remained in Egypt. He and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Micaiah, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die. And listen to what Joseph says. We marvel at Joseph's vision. But God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Isn't that staggering? He's in command in Egypt, and he says, don't worry. You might have lost seed of it. Maybe you're enjoying this Egyptian food. Maybe you're settling in here in Egypt, but hang on a second. Don't forget who your God is. He will deliver you back just as he promised. Verse 25, then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. Almost like that token to say, I'm going to put up on this one. This is how much I know my view of God is right. You're going to take my bones, and you're going to take them there. So Joseph died being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. So look at it. Look at those ending verses in Genesis. Joseph dies and Genesis ends. Yet the reader says that it ends that I have questions, right? I have questions as this book ends. What about the promise of a great nation? In fact, Joseph just reminded us of that. Seems like they're in Egypt and running to Egypt for their greatness. What about the promise of land? This is nowhere near the promised land. And what about the promise of innumerable descendants? I mean, 70 is much, but it's countable, right? It's countable. So it should be no surprise that as we come to the opening verse of Exodus, it's not a new book or a new story, but a continuation of the unfolding story, the progressing revelation of God. Now we turn to Exodus 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his own household. And you see the continuity, the setting is exactly where we left off in Genesis. Did you see that? Egypt. We're still in Egypt. And the characters are the same. Look at verse 2. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. By the way, those would be Leah's children. You're going to see the names of the sons grouped by mother here. That's what you have. Not by chronological birth, but by mother. So Leah's go first. And then Benjamin, and you say, well, didn't she have Joseph too? She did, but scan on down to verse 5. It says Joseph was already in Egypt. So he's not recounted there. Then we have in verse 4, Dan and Naphtali. That would be Bilhah, Rachel's maidservant, her two children. And then, of course, Gad and Asher, Leah's handmaid Zilpah. Those are her two sons. 
So we have a recount. So same place, same people. And look now, not only those sons, but what did the end of verse 1 tell us? Each with his own household. So not just the 12, but each of their own house. Hence, we get to that number 70. And that full number, son and household, is given to us in verse 5. Look at verse 5. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. So the remnant that God preserved through Joseph in that famine is very clearly there. This is your group that has made the movement, right, from the promised land to Egypt and are now here in the opening verses of Exodus. But what we can't miss as we open up Exodus today is that they're there. Do you see that? God preserved them. God miraculously, providentially preserved them. We are not opening Exodus to new people. We are opening Exodus to God's promised people. Do you see that? He has preserved them through, would you not say, the most difficult of circumstances. He has preserved them, held fast. The divine author Moses wants to remind us of that here, hence the recount to open this book. Yet, that is not all that we're reminded of as this book opens. The preservation of God is important, but there's one more here as we open. Also, look at it, the promise of God in verse 6, the promise of God. We'll see this in verse 6 and 7. Verse 6, then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation but the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so the land was filled with them. What do we say at Westmount all the time? Keep reading, right? So often, you look at just verse 6. Then Joseph dies, all his brothers and all that generation. If you stop there, you would say that's very anticlimactic. I mean, God preserving the family providentially, sovereignly. But we keep reading. Keep reading. It would be a problem if Joseph and his family and those 70 died out literally, then we would say there's a problem, but there isn't. Look very carefully at these two verses. Our first clue is in verse 6. It says, all that generation. Do you see that? All that generation. That speaks to the fact that there is more, more coming. In other words, that was the first generation in Egypt, but it was not the last. In fact, as you'll see, it wasn't only another generation that would follow. What is verse 7 set up? That many other generations would follow. That's plural. That's multiple. Look at verse 7 again and consider the multiplication in this verse. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Again, if you were to look behind the English here, there's all kinds of cues on the emphasis of the multiplication of the Israelites. It's amazing. Far more than 70 individuals, grandchildren and great-grandchildren of Abraham, they are now, look at it, the people of Israel. This is a growing mass. And not only are they more than 70, right, of that original generation in the land. The text says, look at it, verse 7, they were fruitful, increased greatly, multiplied. And let's look at their characteristic. They grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. It's possible to translate that last part this way, so that the land was swarming with them. Just amazing. What a picture. And no, friends, it was not something in that Egyptian water but something in that Israelite heritage, a promise, a covenant from a holy God. He was behind this. 
As Exodus opens, so does this vivid reminder of the promises of God. As you look at these opening verses, with a people, remember, that shouldn't even be there. By natural circumstances, they should not be there. As you look at these verses, there's a reminder ultimately of who our God is, right? He's God alone, faithful to his covenant promises. Don't miss that. And sovereign in power to preserve and uphold them. Only God can do what you see as Exodus opens. And we simply see that sovereignty being enacted here by a God who's over and above all things, preserving his people and now here through the promise to his people. And what we simply cannot miss in these opening verses as we open this book, and to press the point here by way of introduction, we cannot miss this, Westmount, is that there is absolutely no circumstance that can sabotage the plans of God. I want you to settle into that reality. There is absolutely nothing. Do you hear me? Nothing that can sabotage the plans of God. Nothing. We have many but what ifs, right, that want to well up. God says, the text says, nothing. Nothing. Westmount, there is absolutely no scheme of man or force of evil that can somehow affect the purpose and promise of God. Church, your God is all-sufficient, all-powerful, all-faithful to deliver. You want to talk about data? 100% of the time. 100% of the time. God is unstoppable to deliver on his promises and preserve his people. Can you trust that? I pray you rest in that. The same God that worked through a famine and evil brothers to preserve is the same God that gave, look at it, abundant fertility to the nation of Israel and Egypt. Just amazing. And as time betrays us, and we must wrap this introduction to the book, we must conclude this morning with a look beyond it. A book like this begs it. A continuous book begs it. Exodus is about God alone, not just in what it presents, but here it is, but who it points to. Exodus is a book that is pointing to someone else, Exodus is about God alone, but it does not, as a book, stand alone. As it is, as we saw, it's connected to what comes before it, but it is also, Westmount, connected to what comes after it. And let's not miss this in our Old Testament study. In Exodus, we will learn of a wicked ruler that seeks to kill all the Hebrew newborn male babies. Does that sound familiar? It's not Christmas yet. Yet one baby is miraculously spared in Exodus. That's a shadow of the account that we have, of course, in Matthew 2 of another baby. In Exodus, we will learn of a man that renounced the glory and honor of a royal court by, here it is, condescending to his people and a time in the wilderness. Does that sound familiar? That but a shadow of the account we have in Matthew 4 and Philippians 2. Two, most famously, of the Son of Man doing what? Condescending and laying down his right. Laying aside those rights as God in flesh. In Exodus, we will see a man of God with compassion on his people. And it won't be the Gospels. You think of the Gospels when you hear that. A man of God with compassion. But a shadow. Moses' compassion on his people. But a shadow of the Son of God 
and his compassion that we see, for example, in texts like Matthew 9. In Exodus, we see a native Israelite intercede for his people, that but a shadow of our great mediator, our great high priest of Hebrews 7. In Exodus, we will see a law. In Christ, we see its fulfillment, Matthew 5. In Exodus, we will see a tabernacle among the people. In Christ, we will see God tabernacle with his people. Hebrews 7, not alone, 7, 8, and 9. Yes, in Exodus, we will see God alone, but the book of Exodus does not stand alone. New covenant Christian, you have eyes now to see what those Old Testament saints could not. Who that Exodus was pointing to. As Jerry read for us this morning, the one in Psalm 2, pointing to that one, that son to kiss, that's the one this is pointing to. Christ Jesus, the promised fulfillment, the son of God that was not far off. We see that so often, the hallmark of every false religion is a God you cannot reach. It's not... A God, we will see this to understand who God is, separated by mountains, curtains, clouds, or curtains, but know with the full revelation, we know it is God with us. God with us. Through Christ and Christ alone, we now have access to this God of Exodus, and that's your encouragement as we start this book. In Christ, Christian, you can draw near to the sovereign God of all creation, and let us do so now, church, as we embark on this study. I implore you, I implore all of us now to come and behold him. Just behold him this morning. We've only just begun. We're just getting started. And we'll pick it up next week. Father, we are grateful that you give us revelation like you do in the book of Exodus. Not just to edify us about who you are, but to point